I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm like, you know, starting to appreciate and respect the benefits of always feeling like an outsider. Um, You know, if I walk into a room, I immediately ask myself, like, who's missing from this conversation? Welcome to a new episode of Chosen Family. I'm Trana Winter. And I'm Thomas LeBlanc. That is Samra Habib you just heard. She is a photographer and writer who shared her experience growing up queer and Muslim in her incredible memoir, We Have Always Been Here. We spoke to Samra about learning who to trust and how to trust after experiencing trauma. And you'll get to hear that conversation later in the show. Also on the show today, a very special chat with Omari Douglas, who plays Roscoe in It's a Sin. Thomas got the chance to catch up with him. You don't want to miss that. I saw that you recently posted on Instagram images of you at 11 or 12. I believe it's a school trip. Yeah. I I mean, just the, like the visual of you in this like VHS and it's authentic. <laughs> and it's, it's, not real, it's not a filter. <laughs> um, there was so much there. Like, what's the story? I didn't ask you what was, what, what, what is that? I recently just had this itch or desire to know what I sounded like and how I acted when I was 12 years old. Um, because it's a time of my life that was, you know, pretty traumatic time. And, And as much as I have memories of events and things that happened, I, it's impossible for me to remember how I was as a person. What did I sound like? How did I move? What was my physicality like? I wanted to know, and I remembered that we had this VHS tape. As you can see, it is a beautiful day and the classes have already started. You can see some of the kids are forming up in their groups. So my elementary school had this annual sixth grade tradition called the grad ski trip, which was started by our grade six English teacher, Mr. P. And they're getting their first bit of instruction. Every year he would do this with the graduating class, but he would also film like a documentary of the trip. Some of them, of course, are already getting ready to go onto the Palma. So the whole trip, he's just there filming us. He's like interviewing us as we're like skiing down the hill. He's like sitting with us on the chairlift, interviewing us. It's gonna be a wonderful day. The trip was three days, two nights, three days at this place called Mont Habitant up north. And we took like a coach bus, which I thought was like so glamorous at the time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure in your head you thought you were Mariah Carey Naspin. (laughs) (laughs) Completely. That was definitely the fantasy. I remember sort of being hesitant to go because I don't do anything athletic. (laughs) I've never skied before in my life. 
Um, so I was excited, but I also had very mixed feelings. There were a lot of fears. And then part of the other fear was going on a trip with kids who were not always so nice to me. And that is putting it nicely. You, you've said that before, but you were basically bullied for 10 years. Yeah. And that's like the middle of it. Exactly. Right. From like five years old to 14, 15. It started to get a bit better around 15, but a solid 10 years. Yeah. By the end of the sixth grade, which is when this trip was happening, I was sort of looking forward to this shit being over. Okay, so you find the tape. Yeah, so my so it was my birthday a couple of weeks ago, and my mom like gave me this bag, and there was the VHS tape in the bag. Um, so when I got home that night, I watched the video. Like, really stupid question. You have a VHS player? I know, that's what someone else <laughs> asked me. <laughs> I do have a VCR. No. I do. <laughs> And I have my VCR because um, Madonna's Virgin Tour concert film was only ever released right. on VHS and I need to have a way to so keep watching that, it. So Madonna and the ski trip. Exactly. Okay. You know, so I wa I'm watching the video. I get to the part where it's like my main interview and it's only a minute. Yeah. Um, and at first, when I first watched it, it was like, I don't know, it was a very weird experience. Yeah, did you have a good time? Oh, it's the best. What did he ask you? Very simple things like, are you enjoying the trip? And he pointed out that I was having a bit of trouble on the first day. And then I say... I noticed the first day it was a bit of a struggle. How'd you find it? Very tough. Yeah. But you, you have to be patient and just believe in yourself and then you can accomplish it. Oh, yeah. I'm just like very honest, you know? I was like, if you just believe in yourself... You can accomplish it. Where did you get that wisdom? <laughs> Which diva gave you that wisdom at that age? Well, that's the funny part, too. So everyone in the comments when I posted this video was like, you're already like like a star giving this like pro interview at 12. And I mean, I don't like it's a weird thing to say about myself, but like there is this self-assuredness mm -hmm. that really comes through. Yeah. But then there is this other part where. I don't want to get too emotional, but there's just such a softness to me at that time. Like I, I can feel how vulnerable mm -hmm. I was. So the first time that I watched it, I thought it was really cute and funny. But then like the second and third time that I watched it, I was just like bawling. And now, and now I know that you're up on the mountain all the time for all your runs and everything. Yeah. And you're enjoying it. Oh yeah. It's such a specific experience to be the queer kid in yeah. your class, in your school. And, you know, lucky, we were lucky if we were two or three, you know, like yeah. in high school, we were a bit more. Queer. I was always just the one. Yeah. I mean, obviously there were others, but I was the only visible right. one. I was very lucky never to really be intensely bullied. Um, but I, for me, was the moment, and I think it, it relates to what you're describing, is I, as an adult, realizing that I was a good kid. I wanted to heal everyone, mm. everything. 
I, I remember I started a club in elementary school protecting the trees in the schoolyard from kids. I don't know, like throwing balls at the, the trees. I was like, <laughs> no, protect the trees. <laughs> so I was just a kid that was very invested in like the wellness of everything that was around me. Yeah. And then I think growing up and realizing that this is not how the world works, I buried, I think I buried that good kid. I buried that sort of like part of me that wanted better for everyone because I felt it was impossible. Yeah. And I think like, that's what I really felt too, watching the videos. Like I was a good kid and I didn't deserve what I went through and no one does. No one deserves Never. that. I think I've realized that I've always just been holding and carrying the pain of that bullying experience the embarrassment, the shame, but I wasn't actually carrying the spirit that I love of my childhood self. Watching the video, I wanted to jump in as me now and stand up for that kid and try to save them from just the sort of devastation and brokenness that, that happened. I'm proud of that kid for getting through what they got through. And I think that that kid would be proud of what I've managed to make happen for myself. I'm sure, yeah. Our guest today is Samra Habib. She's a writer, journalist, and photographer based in Toronto. Last year, she released the critically acclaimed We Have Always Been Here, a queer Muslim memoir, and it was the winner of CBC's Canada Reads 2020. I love this book so much. I think I cried at least three times. She's a leading voice in Canadian literature. Her writing and photography has been featured in publications like the New York Times, The Guardian, The Washington Post, and Vanity Fair. We spoke to her at the beginning of the year. I actually saw an astrologer uh, a month ago. It was a seven hour long session, believe it or not. Like we had to take a bunch of breaks. And she told me that uh, when I was born, my father was having his Saturn return. So he was going through a lot and he was really, really sort of anxious about how he was going to support a child. Um, and we just sort of were moving from place to place when there, like a new kid would arrive. You know, and that is kind of like a consistent theme throughout the book, my search for home. Um, and I think that is very much shaped by the fact that growing up, I didn't really have this sort of this stable home life. There's a really beautiful passage that stuck with me about childhood where you write, a person's childhood home is the prologue to their story. It contains clues to the inner workings of their minds, their specific view of the world. And I'm wondering if for our listeners, you can take us back to your childhood home in Lahore, Pakistan in the 80s. And what are the memories that you have of the way your home looked and felt like? Um... I'm sort of, you know, I'm very attached to smell and that is sort of how I access a lot of memories. Um, mm. 
the smells of Pakistan, they were sort of like the only constant that I do remember. Um, it just smelled like incense, uh, a lot of home cooking. Things were just always blooming. Uh, so it just sort of always smelled like flowers all the time, like year round. Um, and I, I really believe in rituals. And, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I started with lighting an incense and it's very much connected to my childhood. Um, and it just sort of helps ground me. And one thing that is really just central in your story and central in the book is um, your relationship with your mother. Um, and the biggest betrayal came when you were 16 and you were arranged at the time to marry your cousin. And in that instance, you describe your mother as being someone who really took your safety away instead of providing it for you. How has this relationship changed and what does it look like now? And how did you heal that? I mean, we're still working on it. Um, you know, I sort of, I'm always sort of really conflicted about that relationship because, you know, part of me still sort of feels this resentment and anger where I felt like you should have protected me. You know, it, it was your job to protect me. You should have made sure that I was safe. But the other part of me also recognizes that it was also the context in which she grew up. So really, uh, you know, in her experience, the only way out of your circumstances was to get married. And that is something that, you know, she had firsthand experience. Um, and so, like, I understand her context. So it's like really, it's hard. It's difficult for me to stay angry at her. And I kind of wonder if I would have had that perspective, if I were still living in Pakistan, you know, I probably would have, um, I probably would have, uh, respected her decision. Um, if my context was different. And one of the things you highlight in the book, looking for home and speaking of that, that feeling of home, um, is that you moved to, to Canada with your family. When you moved yeah. to Canada as a refugee, it's, from what we get in the book is that Canada really changed your family and it really changed your relationship to them. So can you speak about that? Can mm -hmm. you speak about what that, what happened when you moved here? Um, yeah, I kind of felt like I became a parent overnight without any warning. Um, my parents didn't speak English very well. They still don't. I had to take my mom to like her doctor's appointments and sort of like translate to my doctor what was happening with her and what was wrong with her and sort of like finding out all this sort of medical information about my mother that the child shouldn't necessarily know at that point. Um, and yeah, like it was really front and center that we were facing poverty and I sort of felt like, you know, there was something that I needed to do to sort of change that. And I was only a kid. Um, so yeah, I just sort of felt like I was stripped of my childhood. And I mean, further to that, there's a part in the book where you are sort of looking at people who might have had easier childhoods or less complicated childhoods. And you ask a series of questions um, that I found was extremely relatable. You say, what was it like to grow up not having to worry about whether your parents could pay the next month's rent or put food on the table? am I better off for having struggled to figure out where I belong? And is that a question that you've been able to finally answer? Do you think you've been better off for having had that struggle? Um, I mean, 
Yes and no. I still feel like I don't take as many risks as I should. Um, but I think it definitely, having been through that experience, it definitely sort of offers um, this lens through which I see the world. Um, you know, if I walk into a room, I immediately ask myself, like, who's missing from this conversation? And I think um, that is naturally part of the way I connect to different conversations because, you know, for so long I was sort of looking for like my place in the world and sort of felt like I didn't belong. So I'm like, you know, starting to appreciate and respect the benefits of always feeling like an outsider. Wow, that felt so real when she spoke about being a little adult dealing with your parents' problems. I mean, my circumstances were obviously very different. I'm not a refugee. Um, but I remember when my parents separated, I just felt like I had to be the grown-up, like emotionally. I was the emotional grown-up. I felt at the time like I had to step up. I had to be a man for my mom who very often said that I was the man of her life, you know, which is so loaded. That's why you've been in therapy for nine years. <laughs> and, you know, same with my dad, who's still a little boy at 62. So I really do feel that uh, profoundly, um, but it made me who I am and I have to accept it. And, and I think today I'm weirdly grateful for that. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We found a quote, I think it's from The Walrus, where you write... Being Muslim is one of the only absolutes about myself I can be sure of. It serves as an anchor when I'm lost at sea and it helps me come back to myself. So what is it about Islam that brings you back to yourself? Um, you know, when I sort of was kind of, kind of trying to figure out whether or not there was place in Islam for me um, in my early 30s, I was introduced to Unity Mosque. Um, and it's sort of this mosque in Toronto where a lot of people who identify as queer or even allies, um, you know, that, that is sort of like the mosque that they go to. You know, I hadn't prayed in a really, really long time before I went to Unity Mosque because I felt like, oh, I had, I had no right to like pray because, because I'm queer. But, um, you know, I write about it in the book also when the first time I went to Unity Mosque, you know, there was a trans person leading the prayer and it was just, you know, full of queer people. Um, and that first time of like praying again after like years and years of not praying, it just sort of, you know, it just really took me back to my childhood and I just could not stop crying. Totally. And I think like the work that you do and the work that you do with the book and what is so powerful is that we see healing at work in you. 
like we see you as an artist and we see that healing is working and it has worked for you. And that is what is so powerful. And as a reader, what is so inspiring. Um, and in the book, at the end, you write a letter to your young self. You're the young Samra who's seven year old. And we all, I feel like, like most of us are familiar with this idea of the inner child. So I want to know what is your relationship right now to your, your childhood self? I think, you know, for me, I'm getting better at understanding and recognizing, you know, when I'm feeling anxious about something, how much of that is my inner child showing up. So a lot of my work has to do with sort of like having a pep talk with that inner child instead of sort of seeing it as my current reality. Like it's something that I am scared about because of, you know, harm that was done to me. It is that inner child that needs to feel supported and that needs to feel like it is safe and that is taken care of. Here's an excerpt from Samra's letter to her childhood self. Dear Samra, being a seven-year-old is hard work. No matter what grown-ups think, it's stressful, especially for you. Someone who likes to know the whys, the whens, the wheres, the hows, and the whos. There's just no certainty these days. My serious Betty is how your mother introduces you to guests. That will never change. You'll always be quiet and serious, and that's okay. Don't beat yourself up over it. It doesn't mean that you won't also experience an immense amount of joy in your life. Breathe. You'll get to know many things how it feels to inspire people and to discover kindness in unexpected places, how the sunrise looks on opposite sides of the world and how smart and brilliant your siblings are. But most important, yourself. You'll be okay because your curiosity will lead you to where you need to be. Although there will be many times in life when you'll feel like you've landed somewhere you're not supposed to be, Know that your curiosity and desire for knowledge will pull you back to safety. You'll be okay. Know that. Love, Samra. I mean, in relation to that, one of the parts of the book that resonated really the most with me is you describe this fear, this fear that and I quote, no one would ever truly understand me and love every part of me. The only relationships I'd ever known felt like bargaining and settling. I'm just curious about if that's something that you have found and if you've been able to sort of let go of some of the fear and allow that love in. You know, it's interesting. Um, you know, I went through a breakup recently and that's still very much applied. Like I still felt that way. Um, during that relationship. And I still felt that way post relationships. I'm working on it. Like I have a really hard time internalizing that I deserve love, that I deserve to be like understood and, you know, just sort of accepted and like my wholeness. But I do find that in my friendships that I actually describe as 
like romantic in nature, you know? Um, Can you elaborate on that idea of romantic friendship? Because I've, I've never heard anyone say that. And it feels like a lot of what I feel, because what you're describing, that idea and that longing to be truly seen, I feel like it's something that I've been very lucky to experience in really deep friendships. I feel that with Thomas, I feel that with a handful of friends, but I've never experienced that in a romantic relationship relationship. It never happened. And I, I feel like I almost have like, like I have higher standards for friends than I do for partners. <laughs> like I'm like coming to like recognize that about myself. Like, I don't know why, uh, like my friends are like super badass or super ambitious. They have like a million projects going. They're like, you know, their capacity to be vulnerable is like really great. Um, they can hold space for me. I don't know why that doesn't translate to like partners. I have no idea why I feel like maybe that's something that came from like my childhood when my mom just like wanted to like, just marry me off to like whoever. Um, Maybe that's why like the bar is set really, really low. (laughs) It's like, as long as you're breathing, you're fine. I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) But do you find sometimes that like maybe even some close friends or maybe even a therapist thinks that, there's something that you're blocking off because sometimes people say that to me, they're like, you're closing yourself off. Like you deserve this in a romantic conventional quote unquote relationship relationship. But I'm like, can I not just have my romantic friends? Like, do I need to fall in love? Is this essential? But isn't it nice to fall in love though? I don't know. It definitely um, can be sometimes. It can be. I mean, I enjoy I enjoy the, the feelings that are tied to like falling in love. Um, but I think it's really like an imagining, you know, alternative possibilities for myself that don't mirror heteronormative tropes and the status quo when it comes to desire and relationships. And I feel like my career identity gives me that license to explore that because historically, you know, we weren't accepted by the mainstream anyway. So I have no desire to seek acceptance in a way that makes straight people comfortable. Um, So the older I get, the less I desire being accepted by straight people or molding myself. So, you know, I'm digestible and familiar so they can feel comfortable with my existence. And my career identity really, and my career community, allows me to do that. Samra Habib, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was a pleasure. Totally. Take care. Happy New Year. Take care. You You too. too. Happy New Year. Yeah. Everything. Samra Habib. You can find her memoir, We Have Always Been Here, wherever good books are sold. Everyone has been talking about It's a Sin. Like, I don't remember, maybe WandaVision this winter is the yes. other show that everyone's <laughs> talking about, but like everybody I know has something to say about It's a Sin. It's a Sin follows a chosen family in 1980s London during the AIDS crisis. And you've watched it. Finally. I did. I finally watched it and I loved it. And I have not cried at something <laughs> that I, it was like, I need a new word for ugly cry. I was honestly a ball on the floor. And I would suggest anyone who's going to watch it, watch it alone. You don't yeah. want anyone to see you yeah. like that. And I think it needs to be a private screening. Honestly, it's too, 
It's too powerful. What did you think of Roscoe? Brilliant. We've seen characters like Roscoe in different iterations and different films and shows. Um, but Omari brought this depth and nuance to the character that was profound. I'm going now. So thank you very much. And if you need to forward any mail, I'll be staying at 23 Piss Off Avenue, London, W. Fuck. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs> no. I loved Roscoe's arc on the show from, you know, being uh, the son of a Nigerian British family, sort of leaving his house. Like we see that in the first episode. I'm not spoiling anything to like the sort of like gay life that he builds for himself and living in the Pink Palace with Richie and the others. I was really lucky a few weeks ago to speak to Omari Douglas, the actor who plays Roscoe. He's a delight. Here's a conversation. I love the show. It was so good. It was amazing. Um, how does this moment feel? Like it's such a whirlwind, such a hit in the UK, now hitting America. How are you taking everything in? It's 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 amazing. And we all knew like when we, you know, read the scripts and we're filming it that, you know, I mean, we're having a brilliant time in, in Manchester. We all just felt like this little family that were just making this thing. And, you know, it was, it all seemed, you know, very humble and, you know, we're just, you know, we're going to be on channel four. That's amazing. And sort of like now we're kind of like, I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like speaking to people across the water and that's amazing. And it's amazing that people have connected to the story, like globally, it's just beyond all of our expectations really. People connect to the story and people connect to Roscoe. For people listening who haven't seen the show, he's exuberant, determined, very horny, <laughs> perceptive, fearless. So take us back to the first conversations that you've had with uh, the creator, Russell, around Roscoe. What did you want to bring to the character? Well, I had a text from him maybe a month or two before we started filming And I literally, the message popped up on my phone and it was just like, hi, it's Russell. And I was like, oh my God, because at this point I hadn't, I hadn't met him. So when we got the, when I got this message and he was like, you know, I love you and your audition tapes were brilliant. And I'm so excited for you to be a part of this project. Like that was really comforting because, you know, Russell is, he's a Titan and he's an exec and he's a showrunner and he's a writer. He kind of encompasses all these things. And yet he has the time to kind of like, nurture and 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 mentor like he felt like he mentored us all the way through and he he wanted us to just sort of like bring ourselves and just kind of like whatever flair we felt was necessary you know to to to, to bring to that role i mean i say flair just because that was sort of my instinct with roscoe mm. That, that there is a flair. He's very individual. He's he's very unique in the way that he his his outlook on life is very unique and it's very unapologetic. Um, so I was just sort of like trying to find ways to sort of like tap into that and 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 sit in that place and and embody all of that. And he was just very welcoming to it all, really. And you did. And I in an interview, you actually said that the Roscoe's fabulousness, which manifests itself in so many ways, as much as it is this joyous, vibrant part of him is also a shield. And I found that so interesting because the way we perform gender, whether it's um, masculinity or femininity, uh, is also a way to feel safe. So about yeah. playing Roscoe, what have you learned about your own gender expression? Oh, my God, so much because a lot of a, a, a lot of what I was sort of like 
feeding into Roscoe are a lot of parts of kind of like myself or facets of myself that I feel like that I had kind of shy shy away from or don't necessarily sit in all the time because I kind of thought to myself, where is the validity in that? Or where is the, where's the kind of like currency or value in it? You know, you go into an audition room sometimes and you do something and you're like, right. Okay. I've got to, you know, got to be really manly now. And um, this, this was just a chance for me to just kind of throw all of that stuff out of the window and, Mm. and just sort of like, express myself like however I saw fit and all those parts of me that I'd been scared of were were sort of like good to play with here Mm. because he does sort of like break all of those conventions in absolutely every way totally and you mentioned being you know an actor today but a lot of the the characters on the show uh are actors you know they're actors playing actors so i thought that was very interesting um you're born in 94 and you're Mm -hmm. in your 20s now and in the show a lot of the characters are in their 20s what Mm -hmm. did you know about hiv and aids prior to it's a sin it all came from like films and media and big cultural figures who are Freddie Mercury's and and, mm. and Rock Hudson. And so to me, it was like, oh, it's a little bit, it's distant from me. Mm. In doing this, I was sort of like doing all the research. It kind of like really brought it home to something that was like real and raw and just, you know, actual, you know. The show, It's a Sin is, 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 uh, is about a chosen family. And I think it's why it resonated so much with me. And I think it's going to resonate with our listeners. Um, but there are two chosen families. There's the chosen family of the characters who live in the Pink Palace. And then, as you described, there's a chosen family of the cast. So you were all there. And I mean, from what we see on social media, you all seem to really get along. Um, it's a real, I mean, it's a great, the show is, is a roller coaster. So they're really heavy moments, emotional moments. Can mm. you describe like one scene where you had to all be there for each other? Well, we're so supportive of one another. We, you know, I kind of, I don't know, I just kind of like get, literally I've got goosebumps kind of like just thinking about like the end of episode three when Jill gets that phone call and we're all stood in the hallway and I remember Peter, our director, coming opening the door after we'd kind of like done a couple of rehearsals or something. And he was just sort of, he basically just said something along the lines of like, you know, just, just, just feel whatever you need to feel because this is Colin. And I think as soon as he said that, like, I couldn't not think of Callum because I adore him and 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 he is, you know you know, he's one of my best friends, you know, I, I, I adore him, you know, and they, they, they all are. So there was just sort of like an element of kind of like, not ease, but you, you, you know, you understand what I'm saying? Like, it yeah. was just, it was just real. Like yeah. the, the grief kind of like felt a little bit weird sometimes. It, it felt a little bit real. To wrap things up on the same subject of like shooting this show, um, there's so many great party scenes on the show <laughs> and Rusko works in nightlife. So what was your favorite party scene to film uh, in It's a Sin? Oh my God. Uh, it has, oh my God, it has to be heaven. The heaven sequence in episode two, mainly because it was, it fought for us. Like it was quite chaotic actually. Yeah. <laughs> there were like, hundreds of people in this club and 
the cameras were chasing us and they were kind of like telling us where we needed to be and they were blasting out these tunes and we were just running around like trying not to get run over by the camera and it was just like everyone was like making out with people and it was just like completely it was completely mad like I just and that was quite early on in in the uh, schedule as well so we was it was that that was like a proper baptism of fire and like right. I, just, I just loved it yeah it's like a sort of like housewarming, but for the show, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah in yeah. a way. Omar, Definitely. thank you so much for uh, doing this. Yes, <laughs> thank you so much. Take care. Thank you so much. What are you obsessed with? What am I obsessed with? What's your obsession? My obsession this week is actually an app. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess... An investing app? A a game? No. I guess it's kind of a a form of social media. It's called Clubhouse. I'm sure you've been hearing about it. Um, By the time people are listening to this episode, maybe everyone will have it. Um... (laughs) At the moment, um, it's by invite only. They're nope. trying to make it seem like super exclusive. <laughs> okay, don't 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 emphasize the VIP. What is the app? What can you do on the app? <laughs> so it's a little bit hard to describe because there's not really anything like it. But I think the closest comparison would sort of be like chat rooms from back in the early 2000s. Anyone who's on the app can start a room and you invite people to join and it's just audio. So it's a chat room, but... It's all audio. There's no video. Um, People use chat rooms to sort of do panel-esque kind of talks or Q&As. Some, you can just have a private room with your friends where you're all just talking together and hanging out. But what I love about it is really, again, that it's all audio. There's no pictures. There's no videos. There's no feed. You're not looking or watching anyone. You're just hearing them. You're being such a Scorpio rising. Scorpio <laughs> moon wants to hide. Yes. This is, the, but this is the perfect app for people like us who want to connect but hide at the same time. Right. So you, you've tried it. What did you? Uh, what did you experience? I tried it for the first time last night. So again, you'll notice when you go onto the app visually, it's very barren. It's like beige and there's, it's not fancy. It's not poppy. You know, it's just very minimalist and your sort of discover page is just all the different chat rooms that are going on. I did join a room that Paris Hilton was in. There were about 3,000 people in the room and people were asking Paris questions. I thought it was really funny because someone was asking Paris about her favorite art. Our friend Margaret Cho was in a room talking as well. So it's like kind of like you're in a hotel and you're just like ducking into one room and there's a vibe in that room. And then you go into another room and there's a different thing going on. That's Yeah, you say hotel, I say like a sort of sex dungeon. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That too. So a friend of mine who's been on for a little while um, told me about this one gay room that was like all gay men. And again, there are no pic, you have a profile picture, that's it. Um, But the guys in the room dared each other to change their profile picture to their dick pic. (laughs) And what I think, (laughs) what I think is so funny about the internet is that even on this app, 
that is all audio. There is no pictures or video, but people have still found a way to show their junk. It's like no matter what app or a social media platform is ever created, it's like that's the first thing that people want to do is like, how can I get naked on this app? What are you obsessed with this week? Oh God, it's a it's a long term obsession. I've been obsessed with her for years, Jessie Ware. Yes, Love. we're going there. Uh, she released "What's Your Pleasure," of course, one of the best album of the year in 2020. Part of like that wave of disco records that really saved us during the pandemic. Yes. You loved it. I loved it. And I'd never listened to Jesse before. And this particular album is so sexy and sensual and disco. I like, I'm still listening to it constantly. And so many great tunes, Save a Kiss. That's my favorite. Yeah, Soul Control. I've been a fan of Jesse Ware for almost a decade now, and I have to say, okay, hear me out. So, I am I am a gay man, but I'm straight for Jesse Ware. Or I'm like <laughs> I'm like bisexual or pansexual for Jesse Ware, but I also think that makes me so gay, right? right? Because I love I love everything about her. I love how she looks. I think she's so sexy. I love her voice. I think she's smart. She has a podcast with her mom. I it's know. like a food podcast. I don't consume any food content. Me either. But I consume her food podcast. Me too. Podcast. She's had amazing <laughs> guests on that show. She had Alanis and Kylie. Hello. So... And she was on Drag Race UK this season, and I freaked out. They didn't out. utilize her enough. No, I, I agree with that. Um, and there is just, like, she's very smart. There's just, she has, like, a British wit. She has amazing taste, like, her taste level. But I'm fully aware that my attraction to her pointing out her taste is very gay of me. <laughs> <laughs> but I think if I was ever, ever to, like, be, like, say, like, who is my ideal woman? Yeah. I think she would be Jessie Ware. Like, she is my obsession forever She is your pleasure. She is my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, time for the end credits. Chosen Family is produced by me, Thomas LeBlanc. And me, Trana Winter. Aiden McMahon edits and mixes the show. Nantali Ndongo is our contributing producer. Chosen Family's music is by The Lost Boys. Judy Zigu is our digital producer. Tina Verma is our senior producer. And Arif Narani is the executive producer of CBC Podcasts. Chosen Family is a CBC podcast originally developed in association with Phi Studio. We are recording this season at Tome Park Studio. Also, don't forget... Join us on Instagram at Chosen Family Show and don't miss out on our column. That's the way it is for Extra, which you can find at extramagazine.com. That's X-T-R-A magazine.com. And if you are on Clubhouse, follow Trana. Yes, come join me in the Clubhouse. I need someone to talk to. I only have like eight followers right now. Thanks for tuning in and you can listen to Chosen Family wherever you get your podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.